Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Nancy listeners. We want to give y'all a heads up that intimate partner violence is discussed in the second half of this episode. From WNYC Studios, you're listening to Nancy. With your hosts, Tobin Lowe and Kathy Tu. Hello, hello. Kathy? Tobin? Hey! Hi. How are you doing? Are you recording? I am recording, yes. Is your dog out of the room? My dog is out of the room. She is not at the mic right now. Yes, she's out of the room. Okay, okay, great. We can start. Um, (laughs) Why don't we talk about our amazing guest? Okay, let's. So we are super excited to talk to author Carmen Maria Machado. When we first invited Carmen on the show, we wanted to talk about her memoir that came out a couple months ago, In the Dream House. The book is about her experience in an abusive lesbian relationship and plays with genres like fantasy and horror. It is such an amazing book, and we're still going to chat with her about it. But right before we were scheduled to interview her, the pandemic took hold and we were all told to social distance. And this whole experience with the coronavirus pandemic really reminded us of two stories in Carmen's first book, a book of short stories called Her Body and Other Parties. Yeah, these two stories are literally about pandemics, and they are eerily similar to what's happening today. So we had to ask her about them. Okay, so Carmen, your first book came out in 2017. It's called Her Body and Other Parties. And in it, there are not one, but two stories about pandemics. One is called Real Women Have Bodies, and the other is called Inventory. Mm -hmm. So my first question for you is, did you know that this was going to (laughs) happen? You know, part of what you're good at, if you're a good writer, is you pay attention. And I feel like when stuff like this happens, like, obviously, I didn't know it was going to happen. But I think just like generally being like an observer of like human behavior, an observer of society and observer of just sort of what's going on and sort of drawing from that and the idea of like what happens if you're a person who like you know sort of runs on like human contact like so many people and then suddenly you're not able to have that contact I mean you know I've done a lot of reading of like you know and the band played on and like the AIDS crisis and like I think I was thinking about that when I was writing inventory Mm. Mm. so That story, Inventory, um, it's about a mysterious pandemic that's sweeping the world and and killing people. And the story is sort of written like a journal. Like, you get these brief entries written by the main character. And what she's doing is recounting every sexual partner she's ever had. Um, And what we found really interesting is that by telling each of these stories chronologically, you get these little details about what's going on with the pandemic around her. I'm wondering, how did you come up with that form and format for this story? So I wrote this story at a workshop that I went to, and it was a few weeks in. And early on in the workshop, another student had workshopped a story, which was had a lot of sexual content and was also very sexist. And during the critique, I sort of commented on, you know, the sexism of the story mm. And later, he sort of made an offhand comment about how obviously I hated the story because I was prudish or that, like, I didn't like sex in fiction. (laughs) Oh, you're like, challenge accepted. (laughs) 
<laughs> exactly. So then I was like, you know, I'm going to write a story that's entirely sex scenes. Like I'm going to use the sex scene as a unit of measurement um, <laughs> for the, for this next story. And so I sat down and I began thinking about how would you sort of release little dribbles of information where like, you know, the reader is sort of getting just like little pieces of um, a story that's like much bigger. Um, like alongside the big stuff, there's always the small stuff. You're always doing things like having sex while something really bad happens in the world around you. Like that's always true. You know, you're always making noodles while somebody's being blown apart in another country. You know what I mean? Or in your country. You know what I mean? Like, like that tension always exists. You're living your life in these small ways, always alongside huge, huge, large scale tragedy, war and death and loss. So the story sort of shifts focus between what's happening in the background, but like this young woman's sort of like sexual journey and sexual awakening is like the lens through which the um, the sort of the material is being examined and eventually sort of collides in this thematic way because it's about like touch and human contact. And there's like a part mm-hmm. where she sleeps with this like former CDC employee who's like, if people would just stay apart, we would not have this virus. Right. Mm, right. Right. But people won't do it. And so it continues. Uh, sort of like you know, the world is falling apart and and yet like your junk is still going to be your junk. Like you're still dealing with being a person. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like that your junk is still your junk. No, it's true. (laughs) I mean, inventory and also like my other pandemic story, um, where women have bodies. Like, I feel like both sort of address those, like, it's like, what does it mean to like have a job while that's going on or to like be nursing a crush on somebody or starting to date someone or whatever. Mm -hmm. We asked Carmen to read an excerpt from Real Women Have Bodies. In the story, young women are inexplicably disappearing. As it turns out, this disease is causing them to literally fade away. The first report started at the height of the recession. The first victims, the first women, had not been seen in public for weeks. Many of the concerned friends and family who broke into their homes and apartments were expecting to find dead bodies. I guess what they actually found was worse. There was a video that went viral a few years back, amateur footage from a landlord in Cincinnati who brought a video camera with him in order to cover his ass as he evicted a woman who had fallen behind on the rent. He walked from room to room, calling her name, swinging the camera this way and that and making wisecracks. He had a lot of things to say about her artwork, her dirty dishes, the vibrator on her nightstand. You could almost miss the punchline to the whole meandering affair if you were not looking closely enough. Then the camera spun around, and there she was, in the most sun-drenched corner of her bedroom, hidden by the light. She was naked and trying to conceal it. You could see her breast through her arm, the wall through her torso. She was crying. The sound was so soft that the inane chatter of the landlord had covered it until then. But then you could hear it, miserable, terrified. No one knows what causes it. It's not passed in the air. It's not sexually transmitted. It's not a virus or a bacteria, or if it is, it's nothing scientists have been able to find. At first, everyone blamed the fashion industry, then the millennials, and finally, the water. But the water's been tested. The millennials aren't the only ones going incorporeal. And it doesn't do the fashion industry any good to have women fading away. You can't put clothes on air. Not that they haven't tried. You know, just thinking about what we're going through right now and how 
as unexplained as COVID-19 is, there's also starting to be this moment where I think there's an awareness that it's mostly affecting marginalized communities and therefore certain folks feel liberated from a little bit of their worry or a little bit of their care. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's there's tones of that in the story that like once it's figured out that it's a woman's disease that's talked about in a certain way. um, Yeah. And I was wondering if that's something you thought about as you were constructing this story and, and making it a disease that primarily affected women. So there's this line where they're sort of talking, the, the, the protagonist and her girlfriend or her person that she's sleeping with are, are watching TV and, um, and there's pundits sort of talking on the television and it says, um, they're talking about how we can't trust the faded women, women who can't be touched but can stand on the earth, which means they must be lying about something. They must be deceiving us somehow. I don't trust anything that can be incorporeal and isn't dead, one of them says. Um, and that I was thinking about that horrible thing. You know, it's so weird how, like, sometimes people say horrible things that just lodge in your brain and never go away. And one of them is that thing, I don't trust anything that bleeds for five days and doesn't die, mm. which is the thing that I heard when I was maybe, I don't know, 13. And I've, like, never forgotten it. Like, it's just, like, in my brain. Yeah. And in this case, like, I was more interested in sort of the pandemic as this like sort of living breathing moving metaphor Mm -hmm. of what women can be how women can leverage their power how women's power is taken from them what makes us trust women or not trust women yeah we were talking earlier about these stories and how you know horror genres at its most basic can be somebody running away from a monster or Mm -hmm. like some embodiment of their fear Mm -hmm. um and we were sort of thinking like, well, does it, it feels almost like in this case, the the monster is the patriarchy. And we were wondering if that's <laughs> how you would define the monster in your horror stories or. I think there's a, there's a lot of monsters in these stories. I mean, I think that certainly the patriarchy is one of them. Um, and I think what makes the patriarchy so interesting to sort of expand on this monster metaphor, like. It's the kind of monster where it exists, it affects so many people, but other people do not believe it exists. Mm. And other people are constantly insisting that they've seen it or that they know it's there or that it's real. Other people are like, you're so crazy. Like, what are you talking about? Or like, it's not that bad. Like, you're exaggerating. Or, you know, and you're like, oh, no, this creature, this thing has like shaped every inch of my existence has been shaped by this presence um, and this thing, this creature um, and a lot of people don't believe me or don't believe it's as bad as I'm saying it is. And, and that's a very like real experience. Um, I mean, I think there's other, I mean, also I think like, like a monster in these books is the body just in general, mm. just the body is a thing that can sort of betray you. Um, mm. which is a thing that I think about a lot. Yeah. You know how in classic horror films, there's always that moment where the true monster is revealed and like the monster is society and it's always a big revelation for the audience and the characters in the movie. But like for queer people, when it's revealed that the monster is society, we're kind of like, yeah, we, we know that. We know. Yeah, obviously, <laughs> right. <laughs> That's not a, a leap. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes. I think they're, you know, honestly, like I'm, I've been watching a lot of horror movies recently and I'm really thinking about queer horror as like, I want queer horror in the way that like, I feel like there needs to be a queer version of Jordan Peele where there's like, oh, there's been like, yes. so there's like a, there's like a beautiful sort of movement around like Jordan Peele and like the way that he's thinking about like race and horror, which is like incredible and so exciting. And I'm like, where's mm. the queer version of that? I want it so bad I can taste it in my mouth so like I don't know where that person is 
please please make help. a film please make eight films <laughs> um yeah after the break we talk about carmen's deeply personal memoir in the dream house and the conversation she wishes we were having more as a queer community nancy will be back in a minute The archives at Carnegie Hall hold treasures from our cultural history. In the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk, we use these items as touchstones to explore how the past shaped the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and I'll be joined by historians, performers, cultural critics, and others to look back at the iconic venue's legendary and sometimes quirky history. If This Hall Could Talk, from Carnegie Hall and distributed by WQXR. Listen wherever you get podcasts. And we're back. We're talking to the writer Carmen Maria Machado. She recently came out with a memoir that chronicles a relationship she had in her 20s with an abusive ex-girlfriend. It's a topic that's been on our minds. As shutdowns started happening around the world and people were asked to stay at home, there's been an uptick in reported cases of intimate partner abuse. And even before the pandemic, up to a third of queer people reported experiences with this kind of violence. We do want to talk about in the dream house. Mm-hmm. I guess it's a departure from your first book in that it is more memoiristic. And in the prologue, you write about how specifically uh, same-sex violence is not talked about um, and is not in the archive. Why do you think this is so? And why did you want to talk about it? So, so I mean, I think there's a few reasons for that. I think, and sort of what I argue in the book is that we have no cultural investment in giving queer folks context for their experiences. And so archives have gaps and spaces that exist because we don't value certain stories. We don't record them or we don't archive them. You know, the archivist who has their own perspective, like decides what's important and what's not important. Mm -hmm. And certain stories are not committed to the page. Mm -hmm. And so part of the thing that I'm sort of addressing is the fact that we have never considered queer people's stories to be as valuable as other kinds of stories. So there's like necessarily sort of a, a dearth of them in the record, right? Um, There's also been sort of a historical sort of refusal to understand. The book sort of focuses on lesbians particularly and sort of a refusal of understanding about female sexuality and like queer female sexualities. And then you add that to the fact that we've historically really struggled with like what domestic violence is and like what to call it and how to define it and who can commit it. So, and then you also add to that that like certain kinds of domestic violence also are historically um, not as taken as seriously. So, like, we also think of it as very physical. Like, we imagine, like, the black eye, you know, but we don't imagine somebody being sort of verbally terrorized or someone experiencing, like, psychological violence. I've always felt like the term domestic violence makes it seem like it's a lesser violence than any other violence. I've always felt like it's not the right thing. It minimizes what happens Um, within a household I feel like the more the newer term is like intimate partner violence which I think I see a little more um I mean it's it's interesting because it's like all these phrases have associations with them right and like domestic violence also has this implication of home right and the idea of Mm. domesticity and I mean it's interesting because like you know part of the problem is like I remember back when I was sort of in the process of trying to leave my girlfriend and I remember looking I was looking briefly into restraining orders and I was looking into the laws but in the state I was living in at the time and it was like you couldn't get a restraining order against somebody 
who you hadn't already lived with or were not married to. Mm. There was like a weird set of, of legal framework to define what you could do. And because I was a gay woman, you know, pre, you know, marriage equality um, in the United States, who was not married to the person that I was trying to get a restraining order from. Like, there were just like all these ways in which I suddenly, like, I just didn't quite fit. And I realized like, oh, I wouldn't be able to do this in the way that I would want. And like, it was just like a really weird realization that like, I just don't fit. I kept thinking about language and the words we used. And, and so much of those conversations were about like semantics and like, like there was a woman who she had been convicted of murdering her abusive girlfriend. And then when they were trying to take her before to get like leniency saying like she was battered or she was abused, like she shouldn't be in jail for this crime. And the lawyers like did their best to be like, okay, we know that she's a lesbian. So you, this panel do not understand what that means. But like, she was the woman, like she did all the cooking and cleaning. (laughs) The woman who she killed was like the man. So like, even in that context, like trying to like draw these really like heterosexual sort of circles around everybody. So, so people could understand. I kept writing this book and thinking it was like that scene from contact where she's like, they should have sent a poet. Mm. I was like, they should have sent a historian. Cause like, I yeah. don't even know what I'm like. There's so much material here. And like, I know I'm only scratching the surface. I mean, I can't imagine that your your stories haven't been optioned for film that could one day star Jodie Foster. Like, it's kind of oh don't, don't even say. Oh my, my heart just like did a little did a little pitter patter <laughs> when you said that. One of the things we also wanted to ask is, you know, you're talking about the narratives we're sort of familiar with when it comes to uh, talking about domestic violence, and I imagine one of the complicated things to figure out in terms of talking about this own experience you had was that it started off in sort of in a sweet way and then descended into what it became. Um, and, and us as readers sort of go along with you on that transformation. Um, did you consider starting the story in a different way or like, how did you decide where to start the telling of this, this story? You know, it's weird. One of the hardest parts of writing the book was writing the good stuff. Because writing the hard stuff and the sad stuff and the stuff that was very painful and scary, like, I mean, that sucked. It was not good, but it was, it's really hard to sort of recall how good it felt mm-hmm. when it was good, if that makes any sense. Like, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, it was like painful to sort of conjure up the kind of past sort of dead version of yourself, right? That like does not exist anymore. Like there was this 24-year-old Carmen who was, like, really sweet and, like, pretty naive about a lot of things in the world and, like, had a certain glow about her and the world had a certain sheen that doesn't exist anymore. And so, like, which is, like, fine. That's just, like, human experience, like, getting older, right, and, like, having experiences. Mm. But, but you know, I had to, like, kind of conjure her and then I had to sort of remember what it felt like to be just, like, head over heels in love, in lust, feeling like the world made sense and the world was amazing and like feeling happy and content and excited about the potential of how great the world could be. And like, it's painful to conjure that, you know? Um, But it also felt important to me to start that way because I, I also wanted the reader to sort of understand and feel, I mean, part of what you know, the engine of the book or one of the engines is the cycle, right? The cycle of domestic abuse, which is like, you know, love bombing and then, you know, these sort of slowly escalating sort of red flags and then like, you know, a bad thing. And then mm. the bad thing is followed by contrition and followed by, you know, sweetness. And then like it goes bad again, you know, and there's this like cycle that is the thing that keeps people in abusive relationships. Do you feel like at all that 
I mean, you've, you've now like contributed to that archive you were talking about, but do you feel like the queer community is talking about domestic violence more? You know, I did, <laughs> I did this event once and this with this older queer activist hmm. and she was like, you know, this book is so exciting. It's like an awakening. But she was like, but I also feel like we have an awakening about this every like five or 10 years. Mm. Mm. Interesting. And then we sort of forget it, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I was like, yeah. I mean, because it's true. Because I mean, like when all the books that I was reading, I was reading books that would come out in these like bursts and it would be like breaking the silence on like queer, you know, LGBT domestic violence or whatever, or lesbian battering. And then like another five years would go by and they'd be like, we're doing a series of articles in like various lesbian publications about breaking the silence about queer, you know, and, and it would sort of happen kind of over and over. Huh. Um. And I don't really know what that means, except that I, I think that people are just not queer people, people in general are very bad at learning from their mistakes. I also have this like personal theory that like part of the problem is that obviously the sex ed in, in the United States is very like patchy and weird yeah. and like some places is completely non-existent. And I also think that I really wish that relationship ed was like mandatory mm. in schools oh my God. like all schools that would be so helpful yeah because I feel like you know even if you've learned like how to put a condom on or like how to you know what certain STIs are like um and what pregnancy is like it's like I think really useful to say like hey domestic violence does not just look like this one thing that you're imagining it can look like a lot of things and like here's what things you can do and like here's what you can look for and like giving like young people who are entering into relationships for the first time like the kind of context that they that they could use i think that actually would be like really effective yeah have you had the experience um since this book came out of like queer people coming to you with their own um domestic violence stories and what happened to them yeah yeah people come to me and they're like this book really spoke to me and i'm like i'm sorry you know i wish that wasn't true like i wish this book didn't speak to you at all and and I've also had a lot of people come to me who aren't necessarily queer, which has actually been the most interesting part of it. I am, I've had a lot of feedback from people, or not feedback, but sort of things people have said to me where, like, I had this this guy email me and he was like, you know, I'm a straight man. I was abused by my ex-wife. I know you didn't write this book for me, but, like, I really appreciated seeing, like, violence, a woman perpetrating violence, like, written about, because you don't see that very often. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In this sort of context. And then I had another woman email me and she said, I'm a straight woman. I know you did not write this book for me, but like, I've just never seen psychological abuse written about so clearly and so sort of understandably. And thank you, you know? And so like, yeah. those were two people who like, I was not thinking about them when I was writing the book, but that doesn't mean that, you know, the book isn't useful or for them in some way. It's sort of covering again, a lot of um, gaps, right? A lot of these archival silences, there are many of them. And, mm. you know, and I think that, a lot of people have found pieces of themselves in it, even if they themselves are not queer. We like to ask our guests what they would add to the queer canon. The only rule is you have to choose something very stupid. (laughs) So if you could add something completely inconsequential to the queer canon that we can claim, (laughs) what would you choose? Oh, I know. Mochi ice cream with the little rice balls. Yes, <gasps> mochi. Yes. I love those. Yes. So mochi, much. yes. Mochi. The green tea mochis feel extremely, extremely gay to me. Huh. I love that. The process of eating them is very gay, I feel. Gotcha. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Wait, just the green tea or just generally? You know, I only like the green tea, so I'm going to say just the green tea. Just the green tea. I Great. Love it. We love it. I love it. Carmen, thank you so much for making the time to yeah. talk to us. 
Oh, it was my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having this was so me. So much, of course. Fun. And I hope I get to do something with y'all when you know we are all able to like see each other's faces. Yeah, out yeah. of <laughs> quarantine. <laughs> Right, that's our show. Just an FYI, we've added some resources to our website on intimate partner abuse. Credits. Producers. Zakia Gibbons and B.A. Parker. Editor. Sarah Geis. Sound designer. Jeremy Bloom. Executive producer. Susie Lechtenberg. I'm Kathy Tu. I'm Tobin Lowe. And Nancy is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm a fucking good host. Yeah, that's right. It's right. <laughs>